0: There's a reason I can sing There's a reason for this life inside me One name above all names Jesus, yes it's Jesus There's a reason for this voice i
1: we welcome you this morning to uh, our service here at Good Shepherd and I uh, hope you have had a wonderful uh, Independence Day celebration. Uh, this morning <clears throat> we're going to be talking about uh, salvation as if uh, as we've already noted one of the wonderful things about uh, salvation is that God has brought about salvation in in my life it's Wednesday night We say, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And I'm here to say so, that God has brought about salvation in my life. One of the ways that he did that, or the way that he did that, was through the gospel. And the gospel was sown in my life, and it resulted in my salvation. And so that uh, everything that I have, I I bring it to him, I worship him as a result of that. In Matthew uh, chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable about the sower and the soils. And that sower takes the seed and he throws it across all the different grounds. There's some hard, there's some that is shallow, some that is thorny, and some that is good. And I want to read to you what Jesus, does, how he describes that, or he, how he explains what that really means. And he says this in Matthew chapter 13 and beginning in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some 100, some 60, and some 30. And so the word of God is sown into our lives. And when it falls on good soil, it produces the reality of salvation. And I want us to uh, just pause for a moment in prayer. And let's just thank God for that great reality. Our Father, we do thank you for salvation. Thank you that you made a way for us to hear about this salvation through the gospel. We thank you that you sent sower, a sower into our lives to take the gospel to us. Thank you Lord that it that it fell in our lives and it that it produced its fruit and brought forth real salvation. God, how grateful we are for that. We praise You that You are the God of salvation. And Lord, we pray for our nation, a nation that is so desperately in need of salvation. God, pour out Your gospel upon this nation. Lord, I know that there's much hard soil, and there's shallow soil, and there's thorny ground. But God, we we pray that You would make it good soil, that it could receive the, the gospel and that we could experience salvation. Lord, we pray for our state, for our county, for this area of Taze Valley. God, that, that your gospel would go forth and would bring forth fruit for your glory and for your namesake. Lord, we pray that you would minister to those that have gathered today, uh, to the needs that are here. There are fears, there are concerns. There are health concerns, financial concerns, many different concerns. But God, we thank you that salvation ultimately is greater and overcomes all of our concerns. And we thank you for ministering to us. And Father, we pray that you would receive this time of praise together. And it would be pleasing to you and it would honor you. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank you, praise man, for uh leading us this morning in wonderful worship. I told the uh folks in the first service that uh I think I have the greatest uh, job in the world. I get to study God's word and then get up and and talk to you about it. So it's it's an incredible um privilege that I have to be able to share with you the Word. We're going to be in the book of Revelation. We're continuing our study of this great book, and we're looking at uh, the salvation of the tribulation. You know, throughout history, there have been times of great response to the gospel. It all began on actually with the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost when Peter got up and preached and 3,000 people were saved in, in a single day. And then there have been those times like the time of the Reformation in the 16th century in England. Uh, there was the great awakening that occurred in, uh, in uh, America, 18th century. And, and during those powerful moments of God's saving grace, thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, it has been God's people to, who've prayed over and over through the years that God would bring more of these uh, harvest, great harvests of souls. In our passage today, we learn that there's coming a, a worldwide response to the gospel that will far exceed anything in history. It will sweep the globe in just a few short years, and it will produce a multitude of redeemed people from all the nations, making this God's greatest movement of salvation in all of the world. And God's going to put, put His uh, gospel and His salvation on display in a most unusual time. He's going to do it during the most difficult time in earth's history. It'll be a time of Satan's fury. It'll be a time when he and his demon host are ravaging the earth. Uh, It'll be a time of unparalleled wickedness as the Holy Spirit uh, removes his restraint of evil in the world. It'll be a time when Antichrist's worldwide reign of terror is occurring alongside the pouring out of God's wrath uh, upon all the earth. It'll be in a time of midst uh, or in a midst of horrors and fear that people will save or that God will save to an extent previously unknown. So let's read about this salvation in the tribulation. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 7 beginning in verse 9. Revelation chapter 7 and going through verse 17. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. And they will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for the content of these words today, for the truth of salvation. And Father, we pray that we might have ears to hear, Lord, that You would enable me to speak in a way that would be beneficial to all who are hearing. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be able to appreciate and anew the, the incredible salvation that you have made available to us. And I pray that you would draw to yourself many hearts that have never dealt with the issue of salvation, never come to that final realization of salvation through Christ. And so, Lord, we pray these things. In your name, that you might be glorified, Amen. Now, God's work in the tribulation will be two twofold. First, it'll be a time of Israel's national salvation, which Zechariah predicted in the Old Testament, and the Apostle Paul predicted in the New Testament. And just to, we'll put up our graphic, just to kind of remind you of where we are. And the first fruits of salvation among the Israelites will come from the 144,000. And you'll remember, even though we we plug them in here after the sixth seal, that these are people who have been working during the entire time of the tribulation proclaiming the gospel. But the number of converts is increasing as we go through the time of the tribulation. Uh, The, so these guys, are, these evangelists, they're going to be preaching the gospel, not only to Jewish people, but to the Gentiles as well. And, but but the, the salvation of the Gentiles is what we see in our passage today. Now, this is a salvation that was promised in Scripture. In the Abrahamic covenant, God not only promised to bless Israel, but he promised salvation to the Gentiles. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And it says in verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you, And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, that is a promise that is repeated and explained in greater detail in Scripture in many places. From the beginning, God chose Israel. To be the channel of his blessing of salvation to not only to the people of Israel, but to the world, to the nations. and But tragically, Israel failed at that mission. And the church has intervened. The church is now the channel through which God is bringing the, the gospel to the world. But in the future, God is graciously going to give Israel, another opportunity to be His witness nation. And at that time, they will not fail. Led by the 144,000 that we saw last week in verses 1 through 8, they will be a light to the nations in the world's darkest hour. And they're going to proclaim the gospel all over the world. God's promise to bless the nations through Abraham's descendants it will be fulfilled on a massive scale. We're going to see salvation like we have never seen before in history. And the, the reality of salvation in the tribulation ought to be a great encouragement to us. That the fact that God is still saving souls. So often when we think about the tribulation, we think of it, purely in terms of, of God's judgment upon the world. But God is doing something far greater than simply bringing judgment. God is also bringing about an incredible salvation to the world. And while the salvation in the tribulation is in some ways unique, fundamentally, it's the same, fal- uh, same gospel, same salvation that has always been. People have always been saved by grace. Salvation has always been the gift of God. And salvation has always been based upon, ultimately, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even way back then, it was founded or based and promised on the basis of what Jesus Christ would do. So in our passage today, you see, we see five reasons why we can be encouraged By the salvation of the tribulation. First, we are encouraged that salvation is without any partiality. Salvation is without any partiality. It tells us in verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and tribe and peoples and tongues now after these things we've seen is that's a phrase that introduces a new vision so this is a, a new vision occurring and and when john saw this new vision he was shocked uh, he, he cries out behold that was the first century version of wow John can hardly believe what he sees. You see, during his lifetime, this 90-year-old apostle had seen some Gentiles come to faith in Christ. He'd seen them come through his ministry. He'd seen some come through, the, but especially the ministry of people like the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Titus and others. But though these Gentile churches had been planted, For the most part, they were small, beleaguered, uh, and persecuted. And now John sees this vast multitude of redeemed Gentiles singing praises to God and it just thrills his soul. It encourages him. It gives him hope. He realizes that the church will survive. And in the end, people from all the nations will be saved in great numbers. It was a great encouragement to him. And it should be a great encouragement to us as well. Now, I want to clarify that this group that we've just been introduced to is different from the 144,000 that we saw in verses 1 through 8. Many people want to make them the same. They want to make them the church. But they are not the same for many reasons. First of all, as we've already seen, this is a new vision. This is something new we're talking about. Second, this group is described as a great multitude, which no one could number, but when we're in verses 1 through 8, we're talking about a very specific number, 144,000. Uh, third, the 144,000 comes from the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, but this group comes from all the nations. The, the tribes, the peoples, and languages, and, and finally the one hundred and forty four thousand are sealed for protection during the time of persecution on the earth. But these group, this these people, they have come out of the the great tribulation, and they are in heaven primarily because they have experienced martyrdom. So, uh, verse fourteen identifies them as the ones who come out of the great tribulation. So the first group is composed of Jewish people. The second group that we'd look at today is composed of Gentiles. And you see, that's the way it always is with salvation. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone who believes to whom to the Jew first right and then also to the Greek or to the Gentile why why to the Jew first are they privileged are they his favorites no who did God give the law to who did God give his word to first he gave it to the Jewish people to Abram uh, who did he give the gospel to first he gave it to the Jewish people in fact, it came through a Jewish person named Jesus. And see, so you see, God gave the gospel to them first, and they were responsible to make that gospel known to everyone else. But again, as we have said, they, they failed. And so a little later on, in Romans chapter 3, and verse 28, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified, that is saved, By faith apart from the works of the law. And then he asks a question. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Salvation is without any partiality. Salvation is not according to any nation or tribe or people or language. That that phrase describes people from every culture, every descent, every race, every language. It, it, It depicts the whole of humanity and it crosses all barriers and dividing lines. Salvation is by faith regardless of your origin regardless of your nationality regardless of your social standing and galatians chapter 6 or verse two, excuse me chapter 2 verse 6 says this god shows no partiality listen god shows no partiality that's an interesting word because partiality literally means to look upon the face or to receive the face. God doesn't look at your face. God doesn't acknowledge you because of who you are. God doesn't consider your nationality, your tribe, your genealogy, your skin color, your culture, your language, your attractiveness or lack thereof, your skills, your, your, your social standing, your caste, your education, your position, your reputation, your success, your gender, your age, or your religious works. God doesn't consider anything external whatsoever. He looks upon the heart. He looks at who you really are on the inside. None of those external factors matter at all to God. We're all The same on the inside. And he sees every one of us in our sin. See, there is none good. No, not one. In other words, he's saying, no, you're not the exception. And God knows all of our thoughts. He knows all of our motives. And he knows all of our actions. And yet he still loves us. This is Romans 5.8 tells us, you know, God demonstrated his love for us. And while we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. The only way any of us can be justified, that is, made right with God, is by faith. And we must trust the only one, who ever was perfect, whoever was without sin. And that's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So... When we put our faith in him, you see, God imputes or or he credits the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. He can, he considers us to have the perfect righteousness of his own son. And we have the same standing before God that Jesus Christ has. These are this is an incredible thought. You see, and listen, justice has been served. Because Jesus Christ paid all the debt for all our sins once and for all, and no reparations have to be made because it's already been paid. The expression "there, every nation and all tribes and tongues, and uh, and people and tongues" is repeated seven times in the Book of Revelation, and it demonstrates without question. That God loves all people without partiality, you see, He is always purposed to have a redeemed people from all the nations of the world. God wants heaven to be filled with people from everywhere across the globe and, and you know what that ought to be encouraging news to us. Salvation is without partiality. God wants you. To be saved. And it doesn't matter, anything external matters. God wants you to be saved. God's in the process of redeeming people from every facet of humanity. And we are commanded, you see, to join Him in proclaiming that reality. Unfortunately, you know, I often find myself being a respecter of persons. Do you ever do that? I find myself looking at the face. I, I find myself looking at how people dress, how they act, their attitudes. You say, well, what, what, what do you do when you see that? I kind of decide whether or not I'm going to tell them about Jesus. You ever do that? Do you ever look at somebody and say, well, they're pretty hard. They're, they're pretty resistant. I don't know if they want to hear the gospel. I don't think they'll react well to that. You make decisions like that? I mean, see, we don't want to think about ourselves doing that. But the truth is, it happens all the time, maybe even most of the time. But listen, that's not God's way. You see, I think about that parable of the sower and the soils. The sower went out to sow, and he cast his seed on every kind of ground. Some was hard, some was shallow, some was thorny, some was, was good. But he does that indiscriminately. He's not trying to decide, is this good soil or is this good soil or is that hard soil? He simply is, his job is to throw the seed over all the land that he has there in front of him. And, and, you know, uh, of course Jesus is applying this, the sowing, to the gospel. You know, the sower is, is believers, and, and the, the seed is the gospel, and the different soils correspond to the hearts of, of people. And, and our job is really not to determine who is receptive and who isn't. See, our job is to indiscriminately, without partiality, spread the gospel. Because that's the way God does it. And we are responsible to sow the seed. We are not responsible for the ground. God is responsible for the soil. And do you know what the tribulation is? The tribulation is God plowing the soil. God's going to turn up some fallow ground. God's going to Tear up some dirt. God's going to get some hearts ready to receive the seed of the gospel in the time of tribulation. You know when people usually come to Christ? Oftentimes they come very early in their lives or they come in a time of crisis, a time of need, when they realize their absolute desperation for God. And the time of tribulation is going to be a time of plowing, at a time of of difficulty. And the gospel is going to be sown across the, the entire world, across every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, and it's going to produce a salvation without any partiality from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And so we're encouraged that salvation is without any partiality. Number two, we are encouraged that salvation places us in God's ple- presence. Uh, John tells us that this great multitude is, in verse 9, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. So this vast, uncountable crowd is, is joyous. They're standing before the throne, it says, of God in heaven in the presence of of the Lamb, now that's an, an unimaginable experience in itself. Have you ever tried to imagine just standing before God, standing before the throne of God? I, I can't get very far because every time I think about that, I'm just thinking I'm going to be on my face. I don't think I'm going to even get to look at God because I'm just I, I'm going to be terrified, probably in some ways. But it's. But you see, when we are standing before God in that place, when, when all our sin has been removed and we stand before God with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then we are going to be able to experience the wonder, the glory, the majesty of God himself. And nothing else is really going to compare to that. You know, people say, oh, I'm going to, oh, I get to heaven, I'm going to be playing golf or I'm going to be fishing or I'm going to be doing this. Friends, when you see God, Nothing else will ever compare. You'll never want anything else but God. God's your constant satisfaction. And it says they are clothed in white robes. More than a color. White describes something that is uh, dazzling, brilliant, shining. We're talking about glowing. These people are are, are glowing, they have glorious And robes comes from the word stole. We get our word stole, like a a mink stole. It's kind of that floor-length robe. So these these long, flowing, dazzling robes that they are wearing are the same ones that are worn by the martyrs back in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And, And this suggests that this group is actually a part of that same group of martyred believers. You see, as the tribulation goes on, more and more and more people are going to be martyred and are added to that group of martyrs. And, and so they are no longer under the altar crying out for vengeance. You remember that? Originally, they were under the altar praying for God to bring justice. But that's no, they're no longer doing that because why? Because that has already begun. God has already begun his time of judgment. A- instead, now they are triumphantly standing before the, the throne as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23 says, the spirits of the righteous made perfect in God's presence. The white robes are symbolic of their presence in heaven and they don't have to, they don't, they don't have a resurrected bodies yet. So they're, they're covered with these robes, and they and white also symbolizes the righteousness of Christ, which they've received by faith. It's a picture of the the holiness and the purity of heaven. So we 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 are encouraged that salvation places us in the presence of God. We're also encouraged that salvation motivates endless praise. Salvation motivates endless praise. Verse. Nine, the last part of that verse says, and palm branches were in their hands. You know, palm branches are associated scripture with with celebration, with deliverance, with joy. Uh, They became especially prominent uh, during the Old Testament feast of tabernacles, or sometimes called booths, which commemorated God's provision for his people during the wilderness wanderings. And so to celebrate that, the people would go out and they would build these little structures, little tents or booths, they call them, out of sticks. And then they would cover them, make a roof out of palm branches. And they would go out and they would camp out in these little booths, these little tents. And it was a reminder, you see, of why they were in the wilderness. They had absolutely nothing out there in the desert that God was providing everything that they needed. And so they this is the way they they were celebrating what had happened in their history. You say, well, that's a little weird, isn't that a real weird thing to do? You know, got stay in a little booth. Isn't that kind of a weird way to celebrate? Well, think about all the weird ways we celebrate. I mean, we just celebrated Independence Day, right? Well we do. We wear red, white, and blue, right? Why is that, is that? What does that correspond to? Our, our flag, right? We set off fireworks. Oh, that's uh, pictures in, in, from our history, you know, from the from our national anthem. Rockets, red glare. There you go. See, we 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 celebrate that way. And 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 think about this on New Year's Eve. More than a million revelers gather in New York City's Times Square in a one-square-mile radius to bring in the New Year. Many of them go out there very early in the day to get a place, and they wear diapers so that they won't lose their place. They often stand out in freezing uh, cold and, and rain. Why? To see a ball drop and to have 3,000 pounds of confetti dropped from seven different buildings on top of their heads. And then the city has to go clean that up, 3,000 pounds of confetti along with 50 tons of trash. And that job requires 300 sanitation workers, 30 mechanical brooms, 58 backpack blowers, 45 trucks to collect it all, and 58 old-fashioned hand brooms. And they're responsible for 57 square blocks around Times Square from where that confetti will float sometimes. It takes them 16 hours to get that immediate area cleaned up with all that equipment. That's a little weird kind of celebration, isn't it? (laughs) See, we celebrate with confetti. They celebrate with palm branches. And during Jesus' triumphal entry, the crowd waved palm branches, and they they welcomed him into Jerusalem, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, that celebration was appropriate because, you see, Jesus was the greatest provision that God ever made for his people. The Savior, the Messiah, the one who gives us all that we need. And so these palm branches in the hands of these redeemed saints are fitting as a symbol of celebration of the unequal provision of salvation from the world, from Satan, from Antichrist, from sin, from death, and from hell. All this provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 10, it says, they cry out with a loud voice, saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You say, what, what, is, he, what, are they, what is he saying? Some people will say, does God need salvation? No, he's not saying God needs salvation. A better translation would be is that salvation is from God. That's what they're saying. And they're attributing their salvation as being God, from God, who sits on the throne. And he's made that salvation possible through the substitutionary death of the Lamb. That's what they're singing or saying. See, the only response to understanding the greatness of salvation is adoration and worship. What else do you do? When you see the greatness of salvation, and, and, and that's what we see in verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and, around the, and all, excuse me, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. See, when they're confronted with the, with the incredible reality of salvation, every being in heaven falls on their faces before the throne of God and worships. I mean, think about myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels and then there's the the twenty four elders, which represented the, the glorified, raptured church of all the ages that have gathered in heaven. And then there are the four living creatures, these these unique uh, angels around the throne of God. And then there's this un- innumerable crowd of martyrs, and they all just fall down on their face and they begin to praise God and give Him glory for the magnificence, for the wonder of salvation, this great multitude of of people are saying, God, you deserve glory for salvation. You know, the Bible tells us that angels are fascinated with the idea of salvation. They long to look into it because they have never experienced that. They, they can't, totally just can't, I mean, intellectually they get it, but they've never experienced what it means to be redeemed. And you know what angels do when someone's saved? In heaven, the angels rejoice. Every time somebody's saved, it's absolutely fascinating to them. They, they can't wrap their heads around how God could do this incredible thing that God gave his only son. It, to save these miserable sinners, so overwhelmed by God's majesty and glory and splendor surrounding the throne, they all just fall on their faces and praise God. You know, they begin saying in verse twelve, "Amen." Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, honor, and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen means in that's true. Yes, it's true. It's true. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. It's true. See, worship is their their constant occupation in heaven. All heaven. Rings with praise to God. And what have they been praising God for? The incredible thing that He does in salvation. You know, every time in the fall, especially in the fall, when I come in uh, the four-year out there, there'll be a group of guys standing around, and you know what they're talking about? They're talking about football. Now, I don't know if they'll be able to do that this fall or not, but, but when you come around, they're talking about and they're excited, and they're talking about, boy, man, oh, man, did you see that hit, man? Did you this guy? Did, man, did you, he, caught, he kicked that field goal so many uh, feet. I mean, it was it was an incredible thing that he did. Did you see all those touchdown passes? I mean, they're excited. Nobody has to hold a gun to their head to make them talk about football. You might have to hold a gun to their head to keep them from talking about it, but you don't have to hold a gun to keep To keep them from talking about You know why? Because they love football. They're excited about it. They enjoy talking about all the things that happened on the field. They find delight in it. You know what we talk about in heaven? Salvation. Do you know what God did? Can you believe this? Can you believe the incredible thing that God did? Gave his only son. Do you know all that he experienced? Do you know all those things? We we just go on and on and it's going to be the thing that just occupies our minds and our thoughts and brings delight to us. Praising God's not going to be something you hate doing. Praising God's something that you won't, you can't stop doing. You see, it brings great encouragement to know that salvation brings endless praise salvation also encourages us because it comes at a great price in verse 13 he says then one of the elders answered saying to me these who are clothed in the white robes who are they and where have they come from now that is a question that many have asked And there have been a variety of questions or answers that have been proposed. Now, I don't have time to talk to you about all the erroneous ideas that people come up with about who these people are. But what I want to point out to you is that the elder asked this question not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he wants to make sure that we understand who they really are. Who are they, he says. Verse 14, John says to him, My Lord, you know... And he said, to them, he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the elder plainly tells us that these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They lived into the tribulation, they, have, they were redeemed in during the tribulation, and they have come out of the tribulation as a result of their martyrdom and persecution. Now, that the phrase they says the ones who come out. It translates the present durative participle. Of the verb Erkima. You say, well, why are you telling us about that? Simply this, because to show you, you can't get the full meaning of this from the English. What, what, what he's saying is that they, they have come out, they are coming out, and they will come out. In other words, this is an ongoing thing, a process. It started at the beginning of the tribulation. They've been coming out from martyrdom. They're still coming out right now, and they're, they're going to come out. They're, they're going to be killed. They're going to be martyred the whole time of the tribulation. These are the ones that are coming out of the tribulation. And you see, that tells us that this cannot be the church. Because many people want to make these people the church. but. The rapture, the taking up to heaven, is an instantaneous event. It happens in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. It's a one-time event. Boom, you're gone. But here, this is this is an ongoing process. Now, and if these believers were a part of the church, why wouldn't the elders just say that? See, th- there's a unique identification here. These are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. These are the ones who are being saved in this great salvation of the tribulation. So almost everyone will face some kind of persecution or martyrdom. Salvation comes at a great price. You see, you can be saved, but it's going to cost you. Probably going to cost you your life. And, it's, and it comes at even greater self, uh, cost because it tells us that they come out at the expense of the blood of the Lamb. They've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. It cost Jesus His life for these people to be redeemed. He had to pay the price for their sin even though they rejected Him. They heard the gospel before the the tribulation started, but they rejected Him, and He still redeems them. And let me tell you about salvation. Salvation always is costly. In order to be saved, it costs you everything you have. Now, friends, you don't hear that from the world. You'll hear that from a lot of churches. I'll tell you that salvation costs you everything that you have. You have to come to the cross and you have to die to yourself and you have to yield your life to Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Jesus put it like this. He said there was a man who went out and he found in a field a great treasure, an enormous treasure, and he, he covered it back up and he went home And he sold everything that he had, every resource he could gather. He eliminated that and put it in liquid assets. And then he came and he bought that field with the treasure. And with the field came that great treasure, far greater than what he had originally. That's That's how we approach salvation. We look at our lives and all that we have, and we are willing to give up everything that we have in order so that we can have the far greater treasure of all that God gives to us in salvation. And if you're not willing to make that exchange, you're not saved. And you see, one of the things that tribulation and difficulty does is it causes us to realize the futility, the emptiness of all that we think that we have. And turns us to the reality and the wonder of salvation. And finally, salvation brings the ultimate protection. Salvation brings the ultimate protection. And that's I've got provision that, that works, but its better word would be protection. Um, in verse 15. He says, for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. Now, look, he says, what is the reason? Well, the reason these tribulation believers are allowed to stand before the throne of God is that they have been purified and cleansed from their sin by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on their behalf. That's the reason. That's what he's talking about. And they are enabled to be in His presence and to serve Him day and night because they have been redeemed. The word "served" there is is a word that's often used of priestly service. It's a word that Paul used in Romans chapter twelve and verse one when he talks about your your spiritual service of worship. In other words, our response to God to salvation, is worship. And so the, what, what do we do when we recognize the greatness of God's salvation? We worship. And that's what these people are doing. And he says, day and night. Now, that's an, that's an idiomatic way to uh, indicate that they continually worship God because there's no actual day and night in eternal heaven. And, and, and they worship him, it says, in his temple. Now, interestingly, in his temple, appears five times in the book of Revelation. talks about God's temple in heaven. Did you know that there's a temple in heaven? The temple of the Jews was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. There is no temple on earth anymore. But there is a temple in heaven. You say, what is that temple? Well, uh, you can read about it in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. But let me give you the gist of it. The temple is basically that place where God dwells that's outside of the created universe. The created universe is subject to sin, to the curse, to the fall. God is never a part of the universe his creation god is always separate from his creation and it's that place we call it heaven where god dwells it's that place where god is worshiped where god is honored and glorified and revered and served that's what we're talking about when he says this and so in the you know in the eternal state however there will be no need for a temple because Revelation twenty one twenty two says, For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The heavenly temple currently is the domain where God's presence dwells outside of the fallen universe. But then, when God destroys all the heavens and the earth and recreates everything without sin, there will be no more need for a temple. We will all dwell everywhere in God's presence. And we will all be glorifying him and honoring him in every way. The last, the last part of verse 15 says, And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. You know, in a, that, isn't that a wonderful and comforting picture? God's going to spread his tabernacle over his people. Now, tabernacle is an interesting word. John, who wrote Revelation, when he wrote the gospel of John, used that word in chapter 1 and verse 14. Remember that? He says, in the beginning was the word, and then he get to verse 14. He says, and the word was made flesh and what? Dwelt among us. The word we translate dwelt is the word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. In other words, what? what he's saying is that God is bringing us under his roof. God is bringing us under his dwelling place, under his protection, under his provision. And what will happen when God does that? Well, he says there in verse 16, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Now think about it. As we've already seen, the third seal brings famine upon the world. And we're going to learn a little later that if a believer refuses to take the mark of the beast, he won't be able to buy or sell. There are going to be a lot of hunger during the tribulation. And and it says they won't thirst anymore. We're going to learn later that most of the water of the earth is going to be turned to blood. We're going to learn that the sun is going to scorch the inhabitants of the earth. And what happens? God's saying... I'm putting you under my tabernacle, under my protection, under my provision. And so you won't have any of those things. And we learn in verse 17 that the lamb will be their shepherd. Verse 17, for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The picture of God as a shepherd Over his people is one of the most beloved in the Old Testament. Psalm 23. We learn in in the New Testament that Jesus is the good shepherd. That Jesus is the great shepherd. And the good shepherd, the great shepherd, is going to lead his people to the springs of living water. That's eternal life. And he is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. All friends. Salvation is an incredible, it's the ultimate protection, the ultimate provision of God. You know, in, these, in this age of when Christianity is under siege from seemingly every side, and it looks as though we're losing our grip on divine truth, it looks in so many ways like Christianity is headed for defeat. Isn't it comforting to know that God is the God of salvation and that no matter what people bring against us, that that God will bring us under His, under His Shekinah, under His tabernacle and that we will be in His ultimate provision and protection. I think the thoughts of God's, God's salvation ought to motivate us. Motivate us to praise Him for salvation. And it ought to motivate us to make His salvation known to the world. What does this world most desperately need? It needs the salvation of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, in in the eternal state, all those promises, every promise that God has ever made, will be fulfilled. Let me ask you, if you would, just to... Bow your heads, close your eyes. As best as you can in this moment, put your focus on heaven. Maybe you can imagine, to some degree, the elders around the throne, the redeemed church. Myriads upon myriads of angels and an uncountable host redeemed from, from the tribulation. And every single soul, every single mind is focused on one thing. God and the lamb who has provided our salvation, deserving of all glory and honor. Our fulfillment, our satisfaction. And my question for you is, do you have this salvation? Do you have this hope to look forward to? If not, you can. The, the seed of the gospel is sown today. It falls upon your heart. And it's not my job to determine the condition of your heart or your response. That's up to you and God. But I would, I would ask you to consider, what is the condition of your heart? Do you have that good soil that is receiving the gospel and rejoicing and worshiping and wants to declare it? Or do you need to receive it? Maybe you've been hard, but now you need to receive that gospel. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died in your place, that He rose from the dead. And if you're willing to surrender your life to Him, give up all that you have, Give your life, come to the cross. He will give you His life and all of His riches, all of His glory in heaven you can have with Him. If you'll call upon Him today, He says, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart, you're saved by faith. You're made right, you're justified if you believe in your heart. Do that right now. If you've done that, I would love to hear about it. Let me know. Our Father, we thank you once again for the greatness of salvation. And Lord, may you move upon many hearts even now. Plow up hearts and, and touch hearts and, and give your salvation to many souls this very day. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for your attendance today. As we dismiss, we'll just remind you that we will dismiss from the back to the front.